All right, I'm going to give everybody a warning first. This is going to be a pre-millennial dispensational view podcast. So if you're, not, if you're not on board with that, then... I don't know why you're here on our channel. Yeah, just skip this one. But if maybe you're just curious on on the position and you're thinking and praying about it, which I hope you are... Um. We're going to touch on a very, very sensitive group of subjects here that is difficult for a lot of premillennialist teachers, pastors. Most people don't even touch it or they just really aren't educated about it. Uh, it's weird. Or maybe you're lucky and I know there's a few churches out there that are very educated in these things and and teach it but they're few and far between so but we're going to be talking about and we got a message yesterday and i had mentioned sacrifices in the millennial kingdom in the millennial temple and i mentioned that if somebody asked me i wouldn't do it and somebody did so here we are. Here we are. And I'm going to have to do this. There's there's two parts to this. So if you've been sticking with our uh, End Times podcast and, and um, our pre-millennial podcast and stuff, the last one that we just did was the purpose for the thousand-year reign of Christ and what's going to be going on and what's happening inside of that and what what's up with that. So the second part of this is there's going to be a actual temple that exists and we know that largely largely from ezekiel from the book of ezekiel which talks about a messianic temple period and uh it's it's a very interesting very puzzling piece of scripture a lot of people like i said either ignore it they don't know what to do with it or they just completely twist it, just do weird stuff with it. Because I've seen, really uh, crazy I've stuff. seen Fertig do some weird stuff with Ezekiel. Um, but we'll uh, we'll start off here from. We've got a couple articles, couple sources here that, of course, we'll link. But uh, where we're going to be talking about the predicted millennial temple. So I'm going to have. I'm going to have Heidi read it because she's a better reader <laughs> when it comes to this stuff. All right. So we're going to go through because this has got some really great stuff in it. Um, okay. So it says there is overwhelming scriptural evidence predicting a temple during the millennial kingdom on earth, which this is what always kind of cracks me up when you look at some of these opposing views because it's mm -hmm. like, okay, I get your train of thought, but there's like a list of scripture here that mm -hmm. no longer adds up if that view is the case. And this is one of the these is this is one of these interesting things because there's no there's zero to well I guess I should say there's very few similarities to Ezekiel's temple and what would have been either Ezra or Herod's temple. Yeah, it's yeah. nine day difference, yeah, and we'll see going through it. So it's like if you if you hold something apart from this view, you look at this and you go, okay, well, I have to discard this whole vision and I have to spiritualize this whole thing. And all of a sudden this, te this temple that's very, very specific in this time period, all of a sudden means something else. Yeah. That's hard for me to, that's yeah. hard for me to, to process with this much scriptural evidence backing it. Sure. So some of these scriptures, and again, you guys note these down, pull out your Bible. Um, and Even though the, these the are things, man, these are the things I think that are weird about our belief. But at the same time, it's not because this just goes back to back to biblical times almost. You know, you're, you're realizing that we're not so far removed from all of Yeah, this this is in Israel. Yeah. This is an actual place, you know, it it's actually exists. And, so literal things spoken about know, are literal things that will be literally brought about. 
So again, the scriptures here that you guys go ahead and note down, look at them again. We want everybody to be looking at scripture and weighing these things, not based off of some awesome convicting speech somebody gives sure. that makes you see things the way they see it, but by looking at God's word and seeing what it has to say on its own. Look up Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, again in Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 through 7, and then 60, verse 13. Look at Ezekiel uh, chapter 40, verse 1, uh, Ezekiel 47, verse 1, Daniel 9:24, Joel 3:18, Haggai chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 through 15, and then also in Zechariah chapter 8, verses 20 through 23. Yeah, so we have, and like I said, it's largely Ezekiel, like if you go in, in Ezekiel 40, we go over, and I can go ahead and read, we can go ahead and do a couple in this, but I wanted to try to cover two subjects, Yeah. so, so I want to kind of go quickly, but pause, write down, read. And then again, we'll um, we'll link these, and these have the verses transcribed on here, obviously, so you can. So it says, however, most spiritualize them because they are unable to reconcile a future earthly kingdom complete with temple, which a theology which believes that the church has replaced Israel as the new Israel and that the spiritual temple of the believer has forever replaced any need for a physical temple. So again, that's why all of these things do matter and do affect how you deal with everything else. Because if this is all just spiritualized and we've replaced everything and there is no longer a place for ethnic Israel, then all of these things start changing. Where I understand the argument that's made from the opposing view that spiritualizes Israel. I understand it. I've spent a lot of time actually in it this past week, listening to it, going over it, um, almost reluctantly, you know. But I'm sitting well, but in you've there spent and I was a lot of time studying that. And I was like, kind of soaking some of it up. And I was like, you know, the thing with this view is that it explains itself very, very well, and it fits very, very well. So in study, I can understand it i really really can but at the end of the day you just there's just too many questions that come on the other side of holding this view because you say okay your view sounds all well and great and it fits great with the new testament it feel it fits great with jesus mission it, it, it i get it i i really really do but then on the other side of it i'm going okay but we're throwing away a lot of specific information that's just real hard to try to plug into the way that we plug in the New Testament, if that makes sense. And usually we plug the Old Testament and the New Testament in together, and I'm not accusing them of not doing that. But I believe that in the opposing view, we treat the Old Testament differently than we treat the New Testament, and we... And that just, to me, that's just where I kind of go, I, I don't, you know, I don't see it. And then I definitely don't teach it just because there's, to me, there's too many holes. Yeah. I mean, there's way too many. And this is one of the biggest holes. Now, while this is one of the most complex issues, one of the most difficult issues in it, this is why I believe what I believe is because of issues like this that are complex and we look at it and we go, well, this explains real well into the the viewpoint here that we teach. So Well and then it goes on to say even though the level of detail given concerning the temple in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 47 is impossible to explain allegorically or to reliably attach spiritual significance to, most commentators attempt to do just this. They reject the golden rule of interpretation in favor of a completely spiritual slash figurative interpretation. This in inability to accept the statements of scripture concerning the details of the millennial temple has led to a variety of interpretations. So again, because people will take it, 
you know, and uh, like you said, we yeah, have this just... like standard way of, of going through stuff. But then when it gets to certain things, it's like, well, that's just spiritually. It's like, well, how, who gets to decide what right. gets taken literally and what gets taken spiritually? Right. Like who, if we're not letting the text interpret itself, then now it's up and to you someone's can, interpretation. You can honestly explain yourself right out of Orthodox Christianity. Oh, it's easy. From going the other side. Yeah. And it because you can spiritualize it way too much because, like you said, well, then where is the line drawn? You don't stop. And to me, the our viewpoint does not necessarily draw that line because it gives it up to God, and then it just kind of remains open to saying, "Okay, I can can understand how this goes," but. I understand this is very, very literal as, as it's meant to to be. Um, where, are we, where are we at on here? The different interpretations for the Millennial Temple. Yeah, which, you know, like I was, that's just what I was talking about. I mean, there's, we, uh, most, a lot of people think that it's just allegorical. That's why it's just because of all these different, Basically, like I said, though, it boils down to two views. That's why I, which is usually post-millennialism or amillennialism, those are the two things that take away any literal fulfillment to any of this. As to where premillennialism is the only view that holds to this literal interpretation. Some post-millennial view will, some... But very few, because most post-millennial people mean post-millennial in a completely different way. Not not in like, Jesus will literally come for a literal kingdom just after the tribute. Like, there's not many people that really hold to that view anymore. Usually, now it's, if you when you say post, it's after we've taken dominion back from the earth pretty much as far as making the nations a footstool under his feet. So that that's kind of what the the post means, and that means then Jesus will come. So that's where they interpret post now. So premillennialism really is the only only viewpoint kind of left that holds to this literal interpretation of it. Some of the non-literal interpretations um, have been advanced by interpreters regarding the millennial temple of Ezekiel. These are first few. The vision was given by God for the benefit of the post-exiled Jews to help them remember Solomon's temple design when they restored the old temple. The second view being here is an ideal bullet pr- blueprint of what should have been built by the Jewish remnant after the return from the Babylonian captivity. Or the third view being the prophecy is a grand, complete, complicated symbol of the Christian church. This is the standard all-millennial position. Yeah. As Milton Terry says, the vision of restored and perfected temple service and land symbolizes the perfect kingdom of God and his Messiah. Yeah, and that's then, the most popular one. Yeah, and the fourth view, the glorious description found in this prophecy will be sure, will surely be fulfilled at the millennium, but do not fuss over how of fulfillment this is the covenant premillennial position which refuses to go into details. And this is where I just, you get into a spiritual nightmare. Yeah. Because you go, okay, but you don't interpret any other prophecy like that as a, like it, it attributed to the, the first the first coming of the Messiah. Yeah, but now all of a sudden. But now switches. all of a sudden it switches and then you go, okay, well, you know, you just that that's to me why there's just it's just an automatic switch and it's almost like it goes from a switch to an attack. Well, but here's where now we're going to go into the fact that, yes, when Scripture says, gives us, you know, this explanation of this millennial temple, we believe that it is a real literal temple in the real literal thousand year reign of Jesus here on the earth, taking it to literally mean what it's literally Mm -hmm. stating. Um, This is where we kind of get into first before you go into the sacrifice thing, like understanding this is what it says it's going to be. So we believe it's going to be what it says it's Mm -hmm. going to be Um, because, though, there are so many opposing teachings to this. So, again, let's state some scripture, go look at it, read the text. What do you get from that? 
Those who seek to dismiss Ezekiel's description of the Millennial Temple as being non-literal are inconsistent because similar descriptions elsewhere in Ezekiel are manifested, uh, manifested literally. The Millennial Temple is not the only temple that Ezekiel describes. In Ezekiel 8.1 through 8.11, he describes the departure of the... I'm going to get this word wrong. Shekinah. Shekinah glory? Y- yeah, you, I mean, there's like three different ways you can pronounce okay. it. Shekinah. From Israel, from the first temple. All agree that his description of the temple and the events that happened there are very literal. In Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 1 through 48, 1, Ezekiel describes the future return of the Shekinah glory into the fourth temple. If what he said about the first temple was literal, then why would what he says about the fourth temple be taken literally? Scripture reveals that the Messiah will build this future temple and reign there as both king and priest. Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, from his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne, so he shall be a priest on his okay. throne. Read and that. Go back and read that for me one more time. The whole thing? Just the verse, yes. From his place, he shall, from there? Yeah. From his place, he shall branch out. He shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. How, this is what, I mean, this is the core of why we believe in this. Because this says that he will build his temple and he will be and his he priest. will be his pre that's the core to that our whole view here yeah and this is in zechariah chapter 6 verses 11 and like i said these are these are things that we acknowledge elsewhere okay cuz we'll acknowledge in isaiah 53 that christ is the messiah through these literal fulfillments and literal things, right? So we'll recognize, we'll, we'll point to Isaiah 53 and we go, we'll see he, or, or we'll go to Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll go to, we'll say these things and we'll go, well, that's literally. Yeah. Because Jesus literally meant that he was, he was claiming to be God. And all of a sudden you get to God. this future stuff. And, and then you like, get to nah, this future they stuff. Don't mean and literally. No, it's, it's a little bit different now. I just don't see how we make and, that. And I also don't see the charge against it with saying that most will say, well, Jesus says it is finished. Yeah. Amen. He sure did. But people are still dying. Yeah. And, if and we that's were, where, but that's where it's so hard for people to understand that it is finished. But that doesn't mean everything is realized. Correct. Uh, the scripture says the council of peace shall be between them both. Between both What? Unfortunately, the translation suffers from lack of precision. Where the instructions say make an elaborate crown, the Hebrew actually the Hebrew actually says make elaborate crowns, plural. The term for crown is plural, signifying that the branch will wear both kingly and priestly crowns. There in Zechariah six thirteen. The Hebrew word for crown here is ataret, a term never used in the Old Testament for the priestly crown or mitre. Thus, the scene here is the investing of the priest with royal authority. That's that's where, when we when we talk about the thing of knowing Hebrew and and different, that's why it's important. Yeah, is because different, especially when you're interpreting understanding of something that's difficult and delicate as this, because we don't right. I mean. It doesn't seem to us like it's delicate and and difficult. We seem to understand it just fine. It just flows fine with us. However, in teaching this and realizing this viewpoint, it's fairly serious, you know, and and delicate. So you kind of have to understand a lot of different things. But the different word there is very, very important. Because this word has never been used to describe any other 
person when speaking of this priesthood. So it's it's never happened before. Not saying it won't, and we know exactly who fulfills that and who did fulfill that. But it's going to be a literal fulfillment as well. And when I just don't see any other way around believing that all things, when Jesus said all things, well, yes, all things will be fulfilled and they will happen literally. And there's no way that he's coming to the earth being defeated and not being victorious in the same arena. I don't see any, I, I don't see how you can say all things and not include a literal fulfillment, future fulfillment of this period in that. But anyway, yeah, seeing the Hebrew word there different is important. So there are two crowns, a gold crown denoting royalty and a silver crown denoting priesthood. Both refers to the two offices denoted by the two crowns. The Messiah will be both king and priest, right? Because look at David. David was king. He was not priest. You can, you can go through all the lines of everything. They're, they're never both. This passage refers to the future earthly rule of Messiah Jesus upon the throne of David, Isaiah 9-7. The rabbis understood this passage to teach that Messiah would build the temple at his coming, in this case, the second coming. The medieval rabbi Rashi declared that the temple would descend directly from heaven after the coming of the Messiah. Maimonides also argued that only the Messiah could build the temple. The prayer at the afternoon service on Tisha B'Av reflects this thinking. For you, O Lord, did consume it, the temple, with fire, and with fire you will in the future restore it. To this we could add the implications of Jesus' statement. See, your house, the temple, is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Matthew twenty-three thirty-eight through 39 The desolation of the temple is connected with the departure of Jesus, the glory of the Lord. Could it be that the restoration of the temple is connected with his return? This is what Zechariah's passage explains. This agrees with Daniel's prophecy concerning the Most Holy being anointed following the 70th week of Daniel. In Daniel 9.24 he says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. That which is to be anointed is not a person, but a future temple, the millennial temple. Nowhere is holy written as a most holy applied to the church or to a person. Each of the 39 occurrences of that word in the Hebrew pertains to the tabernacle or the temple or the things of the temple. A reasonable deduction from that fact is a most holy is the temple. The allusion is not likely to be the holy of holies proper because the term almost always has the article written with it. The Malbums say that this, to anoint the most holy, refers to the third temple since it will be anointed. The statement reflects the contrast with the second temple, which the Mishnah record had not been anointed. The anointing refers to the consecration of the chamber that housed the Ark of the Covenant, whose presence sanctified the temple by virtue of the Shekinah, which is the divine presence. Since neither the Ark nor the Shekinah were present in the second temple, rabbinic tradition held that the Ark will be revealed in the future by the Messianic king who will also build the third temple, Zechariah 6, verses 12 and 13. Since the destruction of the second temple many centuries ago and the dispersion of the Jews, the idea of a future Jewish state and a literal rebuilt temple have seemed fantastic to many. Yet, based on his simple reading of scripture written over a century ago in advance of the recreation of the Jewish state, Walter Scott, who lived from 1796 to 1861, said, The Jews as a nation shall be restored in unbelief both on their part and on that of the friendly nation who shall espouse their cause, Isaiah 18.1. They then proceed to build the temple and restore so far as they can the Mosaic ritual. God is not in this movement which is undertaken for political ends and purposes. But amidst the rank unbelief of these times, there shall be as ever a true godly remnant, and it is this remnant which is here. 
divinely recognized in Revelation 11, uh, really the whole chapter. Of so they cut, yeah, the article just kind of sums up there what's going, how the the fact that Israel being reinstituted a land and that their attempt to come back to this does not necessarily um, mean anything great for them, but it does show us that definitely that um, these times are being set up here for the end times. And that's where <clears throat> people that get involved in premillennialism and prophecy and all these things, this is where a lot of people fail because they attribute so much to this current state of Israel, this current, you know, all these different things. And that's where a lot of these people just get destroyed with, um, you know, um, people that just hold different theology and they, because they're just, it's easy to kind of poke and, and prod at. However, taking a serious literal look at the text and understanding it from, uh, you know, a, a legitimate perspective, you can see that these things are definitely a literal fulfillment and uh, you can definitely see the, um, the, the framework of these things being set up currently. And that's, that's about all we could get out of what's currently happening now. It's not like, you know, I mean, maybe this generation that's there right now, maybe they are the generation and the remnant generation. Who knows? I don't. It would... It, it would make sense, but I don't know. But that's where, you know, then we walk around on our, in our media with our Israel and USA flags. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, well, we can't turn a blind eye to the things that Israel has done. And the atrocities that have been committed and the fact that they are a, I mean, even though they play like they are being religiously persecuted in the way of being attacked and by Palestine, which they are, and I don't deny that in any way, um, they're largely a godless nation completely. Yeah, they really are. They largely don't believe, period. And they say Just that... Just like America. They say We're that... largely a godless Basically, nation. the faith that's left in Israel is their parent faith. It's... I mean, this this youth movement that's over there now is not progressing in the way that their parents did. So... I mean... It... <laughs> they're they're not this innocent godly great nation that's that's definitely not neither are we so we're not we aren't either and we can't become blind to that fact and we can't get so caught up in in biblical prophecy that we blind ourselves to that fact because it ruins a legitimate look at a very serious time that we're in actually right now which ends up with a bunch of scoffers. Imagine that. Yeah. So how what how are we on time? How long have we? Half an hour. Okay. So we have, we have plenty of time to do the second part in this. I wanted. So to we to need to know obviously that there is aim. going to be a temple is going to do these things, and then there's talk about these millennial sacrifices, and so this is a topic that gets people going. Wait, what? How? Does yeah. That this is work? what is that literal or is that spiritual? People. How do we take this? Okay, yeah. Now, this one is even difficult for the people that agree with this Millennial Temple. Because a lot of them are like, okay, I could see the fact that a temple would exist, but why would sacrifices don't make any sense at all? And they'll point to Hebrews, which correctly point to Hebrews. Um, but this, like I said, this is a difficult... Teaching that you won't hear a lot of places. I myself have heard it maybe from like three or four serious Bible 
scholars. There's plenty of of information and in, in literature on it. But as far as a common common teaching, it's probably only about three or four legitimate Bible teachers that that I've heard it come from. And it's the sacrifices in the Millennial Temple. So definitely understand the um you know, the criticism of it. They can understand why this short circuits people's brains and why they're just like they throw it off of the table um, because it, it's a difficult one unless you study it, unless you you understand it from the the pre the pre millennial standpoint. So, I think this article sums up very well all the different points on why even I this is basically why I hold to this here so all right so it says one of the more difficult aspects of the millennial kingdom concerns passages which make plain that a sacrificial system will be active during the thousand year reign of Christ on earth the sacrifices are both by Ezekiel in his famous passage concerning the millennial temple in chapters 43 20 Forty-three, twenty-six, forty-five, fifteen, forty-five, seventeen, forty-five, twenty, but it's also by four other prophets: Isaiah in fifty-six, seven; again, Isaiah sixty-six, twenty through twenty-three; Jeremiah thirty-three, eighteen; Zechariah fourteen, verses sixteen through twenty-one; and Malachi chapter three, verses three and four. If the writer of Hebrews indicates that Christ's one-time sacrifice has made a new and living way to approach God, which is Hebrews ten twenty then what possible purpose would future sacrifices serve, especially after the return of Christ and during his righteous rule from Jerusalem? One of the most difficult passages to harmonize with dispensational literalism is Ezekiel 40, verse 1 through 48, 1. In these chapters, Ezekiel recorded a vision of a new temple in which sacrificial ritual occurred. This immediately places the dispensationalists in a dilemma. If the temple is viewed as in the eschaton and the sacrifices are literal, then this seems to be at odds with the book of Hebrews, which clearly states that Christ's sacrifice has put an end to all sacrifice. If, on the other hand, the sacrifices are not accepted as literal, this seems to oppose one of the cornerstones of dispensationalism, namely the normal interpretation of prophetic literature. Several elements contribute to an understanding of the purpose of sacrifices during the millennial kingdom. So... Again, let's look at this because if it's not to be taken literal, then that just like throws this right. whole idea of premillennial dispensationalism off the table, right? Because then we're right. picking and choosing what is and what isn't. But definitely does put us at odds because we have it's one of these things that's very uncomfortable that we don't want to look at. But if it is literal, then what the heck do we do with something like Hebrews? Right, because right? I've had, and believe me, I've had even people that are premillennialists look at me like I've got a horn in my head when I say something about this. And they're like, Wait, what? Yeah. How can you say that? All right. So let's look like, at a few of these points and kind of the scripture to go with them and see how on earth we understand this. So first point, during the millennial kingdom, sin remains. Although conditions during the millennial reign are far superior to the present age, we'll have a just ruler, regenerated environment, peace among the animals and men. The problem of sin and death remains. Remember, in the millennial kingdom, those things still exist. They don't cease. Things are going to be a heck of a lot better. But for the humans that are alive after the tribulation during the thousand year period, sin and death will still exist. It's not gone yet. And we know that because of Isaiah 65, 20. Not everyone in the kingdom will have obtained their glorified state of sinlessness. We know that from Revelation 20, verse 4, through, uh, and then 26. 20, verse 6, not 26. Okay. At its inception, those believers who survived the tribulation will enter the kingdom in their natural bodies. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 34. They will have natural children, all whom will be born in sin, some of whom will reject God. We know that from Isaiah 65, 20 and Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9. So there will still be normal people having normal children, <laughs> having normal lives, having to choose to either serve God or not, just like we are now. Satan will be... Right, which the kingdom starts... <clears throat> the king, Excuse me. The kingdom starts off, obviously, 
with the start of people coming out of the tribulation period, which yeah. um, will be... Not going to be many. Not going to be very many. I mean, it's a very small number of believing Jews and a very small n- number of Gentiles. I was thinking on this earlier, actually, as I was studying and just realizing how small this is. It's not like there's no second chance. Yeah. It's, you know, this number is so small. And the, f- and the things that you're going to have to be willing to accept in order to follow Christ. But even now, you can see in all over the world... You can see the things you just read to me before we started this. Somebody being tortured for their faith. Yep. So much so that they were trying to get them to renounce their faith. Yeah. And, I mean, where was this? It was what uh, country? That I read a few of them. I don't remember. Was it Africa? Yeah, I can't I remember. That one. It was like Africa South or Nepal. Africa. Sorry, I read a few of them one right know. after the other. Anyway, um, tortured. For the faith. So it's like, you know what? Are you ready? Would you be ready here in this country to be round up like some kind of criminal and tortured? Do you remember the name of that movie that showed that period with the the soldiers going around at the beginning of the tribulation and rounding people? Do you remember the name of it? It was on Pure Flix. Pure Flix has some cool uh, tribulation period movies, and there was one like that. And it I showed, don't remember. Yeah. Like the oh, gest- no. The Gestapo no. coming around. I don't think. Was that on Pure Flix? I yeah. thought that was maybe on something else. Cause no. I, yeah, I know what you're talking about, though, because they went out and they were searching. Yeah, maybe you're right, because they were searching people for their Bibles. Mm-hmm. And they were like, if you had a Bible, it was like a serious, serious crime, yeah. and you got. Yeah, um, but that's that's exactly so. I mean, um, are you ready to do that even outside of the tribulation period? That's and that's even happening now. So being increased and being the worst time in human history, like that's not an easy way out. Like that's not an easy way to go, and not everybody's going to accept Christ and make it through. Some people will just curse him and refuse to accept him and then be caught dead in that. So the people coming out of this period will come in very, very, um, you know, traumatized. And they will, they've come to the Lord, they've come to Christ. But as they repopulate the earth, we still have this period where you have a choice and this kind of I think this goes into a little bit more of that but we can see that even in the most perfect scenario there's going to be some disputes so you can see that people are still kind of fighting and arguing so because um, this isn't the eternal state this is just a thousand correct. years the, of correct rain. this is the kingdom this is the literal fulfillment to the promises that are in the old testament this is the and the hard stuff to talk about or believe even for believers because you're like this is when kind of the rubber meets the road so to speak when you're talking about things that are of substance that you can see in front of you well, right we're not here. we're not talking about the spiritual world as much we're talking about the unveiling of the spiritual world and yeah. this coming to complete reality well, and the point, too, that in this thousand-year reigns, it shows us that even with the perfect ruler making the perfect, right? Because it's easy right now to say, well, the world's falling apart because of the liberals or because of the conservatives or because of this president or that world right, leader or that, whatever that, it may be, right? Like there's a million. That we still cannot Because of corrupt organizations and, and greedy people or whatever, right? Like we can go on and on and point fingers all day, but it's like the point of this millennial reign is to show that even with the perfect ruler, because it's, you know, Jesus Correct. Christ, the Messiah, we, our sinful flesh, will still screw up we will still choose you know all these things and yes satan is bound during the thousand year reign but sin still exists correct so much yeah and i mean it only takes the flesh 
I mean, the fallen state, it only takes the flesh not even, I mean, a very short amount of time before it would go completely against God and try to attack it. That's why this time after Satan is bound and let out for a little while, Mm -hmm. he gathers the nations all of a sudden back up against God. So how the heck does that happen that quick right after this thousand year reign of perfect? That shows you the power of... Of these things. So go ahead and read. So next point being the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The unique ministry of the Holy Spirit during this age, which began on the day of Pentecost and formed the spiritual temple of the believer, may also end at the rapture of the church when the body of Christ returned to be with her Lord. John 14, 1 through 3. This unique spiritual ministry, which began with the formation of the church for the purpose of the present age, may not attend regeneration during the millennium. Scripture simply does not say. Since a new and different ministry of the Spirit, Spirit Baptism, attended salvation beginning with the day of Pentecost, it may be presumptuous to assume that the precise continuance of the same ministry in the lives of believers subsequent to the departure of the church. Note that the spiritual temple of the believer is associated with membership in the body of Christ during the present age. The spiritual organism was created for purposes associated with Jesus' physical absence, John 7, 38-39 and John 16, 7. But during the millennial kingdom, Jesus will be physically present on earth. At that time, the literal body of Christ himself will be seated on the throne of David and ruling from Jerusalem. The third point, presence of God. Prior to the incarnation, God's presence was manifested by the Shekinah and was approached to the sec- an approach to the Shekinah was highly restricted through a priesthood and elaborate temple liturgy. At the first coming of Messiah, God's presence was manifested in the incarnation of Jesus, John 1.14, and was handled directly by sinful flesh, Luke 7, verse 44. After the ascension of Jesus with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, believers were baptized with the Spirit and God's presence dwelt within them as a spiritual temple and provided a new quality of access to God, Hebrews 4.16. The pattern in this, the pattern is this. Changes in the manifestation of the divine presence, the Shekinah incarnation spirit baptism, are attended by changes in the way of approach to the present, physical temple and liturgy, direct physical handling, spiritual temple. During the millennial kingdom, God's presence will be manifested in the physical person of Messiah Jesus, reigning from Jerusalem as both king and priest. Again, Zechariah 6.13. When the divine presence resides in physical form within the millennial temple, an entire priestly liturgy will be instituted, which includes a system of sacrifice. Coming up here is the most important point to pay attention to in this whole thing. So the purpose of sacrifice. So we recognize that animal sacrifice could not purchase salvation. That's Hebrews 10.4. And that it pointed to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God to reconcile sinners to God. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, 1 Peter 1, 19. To the objection that a renewal of expiatory animal sacrifices is unthinkable and would deny the complete efficacy of our Lord's atoning death, this reply is very simple. No animal sacrifice in the Bible has ever had efficacy. Hebrews 10, 4. These sacrifices were simply a remembrance of the sins committed and pointed forward to the one sacrifice which would take them away. The countless animals which died in the Old Testament did not move man any closer to redemption, but neither were they entirely a forward-pointing memorial. Animal sacrifice had intrinsic value. It provided atonement. We discuss this aspect in in more detail below. As has been recognized, animal sacrifice in the Old Testament was a type, a forward-looking memorial to the eventual sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And again, you guys, Exodus chapter 12, verses 5 through 6, Isaiah 53, 7, John 1, verse 29, <coughs> then again, John 1, 36, John 19, 14, Acts 8, 32, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, 1 Peter 1, 19, Revelation 5, 6, and Revelation 5, 12. Some have explained the sacrifices during the millennial kingdom as having a similar backward-looking memorial purpose. These sacrifices will be types and symbols of their faith in Christ's death, but that does not make them any any the less real. 
there will probably be mingled sorrow and joy in the sacrifices as they recall how their fathers refused to accept Christ as the Messiah, and now they have the privilege of seeing it all so clearly. Most dispensationalists have explained the sacrifices in Ezekiel 40 through 48 through what is known as the memorial view. According to this view, the sacrifices offered during the earthly reign of Christ will be visible reminders of his work on the cross. Thus, these sacrifices will not contradict the clear teaching of Hebrews, for they will not have any efficacy except to memorialize Christ's death. The primary support for this view is the parallel of the Lord's Supper. It is argued that just as the communion table looks back on the cross without besmirching its glory, so millennial sacrifices will do the same. It's an interesting point. The memorial view helps explain one of the purposes of millennial sacrifices, which they share with Old Testament sacrifices. Yet in itself, this explanation is lacking because the scriptures indicate that millennial sacrifices are more than just memorial. They provide atonement. And you see that in Ezekiel 16, 63, 43, 20, 43, 26, 45, 15, 45, 17, and 45, 20. As we saw above, God's presence will be on earth in a new way which differs from the Shekinah of the Old Testament, the incarnation of the life of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit indwelling the church as a spiritual temple during the present age. Atonement cleansing was necessary in Leviticus because of the descent of the Shekinah in Exodus 41. 40 verse 1, not 41. A holy God had taken up residence in the midst of a sinful and unclean people. Similarly, Ezekiel foresaw the return of God's glory to the millennial temple. This will again create a tension between a holy God and an unclean people. So we will have Christ, God, the Messiah, living here on the earth, but with sinful people still. Right. Animal sacrifices during the millennium. Just as in the Old Testament when he was in the the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. Correct. There had to be an atonement, which, again, we just do not comprehend the holiness of God next to our blemished, disgusting, sinful selves. Like, we don't, I don't think, fully comprehend that. Right. Animal sacrifices during the millennium will serve primarily to remove ceremonial and cleanliness and prevent defilement from polluting the temple envisioned by Ezekiel. Remember, things are going to get real Old Testament, I think, real quick. Mm-hmm. You know, we feel like we're so far removed now, but that's because we're so far removed from God mm-hmm. now across, the, I mean, every country across the world. This will be necessary because the glorious presence of Yahweh will once again be dwelling on earth in the midst of a sinful and unclean people. When we carefully read the following passage from the book of Hebrews, we notice that the author differentiates between purification of the flesh and cleansing of the conscience. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, and which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part the high priest went alone only once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that we... That the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. The writer of Hebrews understands that although animal sacrifices were ineffectual as a means of salvation, they were effectual for the purifying of the flesh. Animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were not purely forward-looking memorials, but also had effectual function in their time. Their function was not that of providing redemption, but of providing ceremonial cleansing. Hebrews 9.10 and 13.1 state that the Levitical offerings were related to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, and the sprinkling of blood so as to sanctify and purify the flesh. Animal sacrifices were officious in removing ceremonial uncleanliness. While Christ is superior, the fact should not be lost that animal sacrifices did in the earthly sphere cleanse the flesh and remove outward defilement. Hebrews reveals that Christ's death met certain objectives and operated in a sphere different from that of the animal sacrifices in the old economy. Hebrews states that animal sacrifices were efficacious in the sphere of ceremonial cleansing. They were not efficacious, however, in the realm of conscience and therefore in the matter of spiritual salvation. Because of this, Christ's offering is superior in that it accomplished something the Levitical offerings could, never could, namely logical benefits. With an appreciation of the effectual aspect of Old Testament sacrifice, that Old Testament sacrifice was more than merely a memorial to the coming work of Christ, we can begin to see why sacrifices are indicated during the Millennial Kingdom. Another way of looking at the relation of animal sacrifice to Christ's redemptive work is to ask what the effect is of adding to Christ's redemptive work. We know that to add anything to Christ's redemptive work is blasphemy, for it is akin to representing that his work was incomplete. This in itself indicates sacrifice, which was required by the Old Testament, could not be merely a miniature form of what Christ did. For then their efficacious value would be said to contribute to the work of Christ. Alas, this is blasphemy. This dilemma is solved by recognizing that the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament had efficacious value which pointed to but differed in function from the ultimate redemptive work of Christ. Once we recognize this distinction, we understand that in the same way Old Testament sacrifices did not add to the work of Christ, neither will millennial sacrifices take away from it. Perhaps as analogy would be of further help. That of the contribution of confession in the life of the believer. When a believer is born again, he is unable to become unborn, for he is among those chosen by God. As a member among the redeemed, the one-time sacrifice of Jesus paid for all his sin, both past and future. When he commits sin, it does not result in the loss of salvation. Otherwise, every believer would lose his salvation daily and require regeneration a multitude of times. Moreover, there would be no possibility of knowing whether he has eternal life. Yet sin clearly separates the believer from God. Although his salvation is secure, his fellowship is adversely affected because he becomes more distant from God. The solution is found in repentance and confession, 1 John 1, 9. We find that the confession of the believer is efficacious for cleansing, but unrelated to his essential salvation. This is analogous to the function of animal sacrifices both in the Old Testament and the coming millennial kingdom. They are not salvific, but associated with cleansing and the approach of God by those who still suffer the ravages of sin. And then there's a million resources to additional information on this. All right. So, in summarization of the what Heidi just read, I've got another resource here that summarizes it up pretty well that I'll go ahead and read, and it has more verses along with it. Um, that are the, they're the same ones that that the ones in this that Heidi referenced, but this just kind of gives you a quick summarization of everything that we ju- that she just read, and to answer the question of will there be animal sacrifices during the millennial kingdom? Sure. So there are several passages in the old Testament that clearly indicate animal sacrifice will be reinstituted during the millennial kingdom. Some passage, some passages mention it in passing as the topic of the millennial kingdom is discussed passages like Isaiah 56, six through eight, Zechariah 14, 16, and then Jeremiah thirty three fifteen through 18. 
The passage that is most extensive, giving the greatest detail, is Ezekiel 43, 18 through 46, 24. It should be noted that this is part of a greater passage dealing with the Millennial Kingdom. A passage that begins with Ezekiel 40. In Ezekiel 40, the Lord begins to give details of the temple that, that will exist during the Millennial Kingdom. A temple that dwarfs all other temples previously built. Even Herod's temple that was quite large, which existed during the earthly ministry of Christ. After giving details concerning the size and appearance of the temple and the altar, the Lord then begins to give the detailed instruction as to the animal sacrifices that will be offered, and that's in Ezekiel 43, 18-27. In chapter 44, the Lord gives instructions as to who will be offering sacrifices to the Lord. The Lord states that all of the Levites will not be offering blood and fat to the Lord due to previous sin. It will be those from the lineage of Zadok. Chapters 45 and 46 continue to mention that animal sacrifices will be made. Primary objection made to the idea of animal sacrifices returning during the Millennial Kingdom is that Christ has come and offered a perfect sacrifice for sin, and there is therefore no need to sacrifice animals for sin. See, that's just what we just read with Heidi. So again, we're just summarizing this in a little bit more simpler way. However, it must be remembered that animal sacrifice never removed the sin that spiritually separated a person from the Lord. Hebrews 10, 1-4 says, The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshippers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away your sins. It's incorrect to think that animal sacrifices took away sins in the Old Testament. And it is incorrect to think that they will do so in the Millennial Kingdom. Animal sacrifices served as the object lessons for the sinner. That sin was and is a horrible offense against God. And that the result of sin is death. Romans 3.20 says, Because by the works of the law... No flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Most premillennial scholars agree that the purpose of animal sacrifice during the millennial kingdom is memorial in nature. As the Lord's Supper is a reminder of the death of Christ to the church today, animal sacrifices will be a reminder during the millennial kingdom. To those born during the millennial kingdom, animal sacrifices will again be an object, object lesson. During that future time, righteousness and holiness will prevail, but those with earthly bodies will have a sin nature, and those will need to teach, and there will be a need to teach about how offensive sin is to a holy and righteous God. Animal sacrifices will serve that purpose, but in those sacrifices there is a remi reminder of sins year by year. We'll link both of those resources there, but those are. I thought those were really good in, in summarizing this whole kind of touchy, uh, confusing subject for some, uh, especially this animal sacrifice subject, because I think people can go way too far with it. I have seen some different things on YouTube, and I know there are some extreme... I'm not saying all so please don't think that i'm saying all but some extreme to our observance um go some crazy places yeah. with this um, like whoa whoa and whoa, i'm like whoa on, whoa, whoa. this is already a touchy subject that you must handle with caution yeah to begin with here so and the, this is the second part is i know that this is a very uh sensitive topic and that's why i try to handle it carefully it does require uh, a lot of, if you're interested in it, 
a lot of studying, look into it, looking into it, prayer, cross-referencing, um, and we'll provide everything that we have for it um, to kind of explain it better if you're interested in it. But that deals with that. And again, if you have any questions, go ahead and just email either Heidi or I. Um, get a hold of us. We are everywhere and all on all the places. So you know how to get a hold of us. And we will be more than happy to engage in, in conversation on it if you're interested. Yeah, absolutely. So hopefully that helps something. Yeah. Anyways, it gives you a lot of scripture to go and look at and pray yeah. over and see what, you yeah, know, what lands and, where. So Yeah, and, and just try to think about it. I know most people are probably like blown away a little bit because, like I said, <laughs> like it's not something what? in here. This is crazy. Oh. All right, guys, that's it.